of a smoke alarm that when it detected smoke had a very calming and, and pleasing voice that, that said things like, your bed is nice and cozy. Just stay there. That's not real smoke. You're just imagining it. Dream on, little dreamer. Maybe it would even sing a song, lullaby, and good night. Whoa. What would you think of a smoke alarm like that? <laughs> you don't want that, right? You want a smoke alarm that goes beep, beep, beep. Why? So you wake up and don't die, right? Okay. Why do I mention that? Well, Paul warns in the New Testament that times would come when people desired only comforting preaching of God's word that, that tickled their ears. Messages perhaps like, you are wonderful just as you are. You determine your own destiny. Whatever path you choose, God will smile on it. In strong contrast to that kind of preaching, in Matthew chapter 3, we, we meet the messenger of the king, John the Baptist, who, who bursts onto the scene of history after 400 years of prophetic silence and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we go through Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to break it into two parts. The bad news and the good news. I mention both right now because as we go through the first part of this chapter, we are going to feel the full weight of the bad news. Just know the, the good news is coming. So if you have your Bibles, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to meet John the Baptist, the human smoke alarm, the messenger of the king, in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, even the location of where he preached would catch a perceptive Jew's notice. John the Baptist was not downtown Jerusalem in the temple, was he? He is in the, the wilderness. And if you're a Jew who knows his or her history, you know about the wilderness. That's where God revealed his will, the law to his people at Mount Sinai. That's where he taught them to depend on him by giving them that daily manna. That's where they taught, he taught them to follow him by that pillar, right? We learn later that it's in the wilderness of Judea near the Jordan River. Again, if you're a Jew, what do you think of when you think of the Jordan River? You think of, of Joshua leading the people into the promised land. The, the priests step into the water. They parted and they entered the land, a place of deliverance into God's promise. So keep all of that in mind. 
His message, as we mentioned, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We will come back to that more in detail in a little bit. But for now, I just was thinking about how would you feel being around John the Baptist? Like, do you imagine like he some people are comfortable to be around and some people are kind of not comfortable because they they say truth that sometimes you don't necessarily want to hear. I think of John as a preacher, almost like a porcupine. And that's fresh on my mind because yesterday I was hiking at Willow Lake with, with Jaden and Luke, and, and we saw something in the distance, and at first we thought it was a baby javelina. So I said, let's get out of here because Mama might be close. But then we looked closer, and it was a, a porcupine. And, and Jaden began to get closer, closer, get pictures, and I said, don't get too close. You know about those needles. You don't want to get too close to a porcupine because they're prickly. I think John's message was kind of a, a prickly, uncomfortable message. But he was predicted by their prophets. Verse 3, Matthew tells us, this John, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Centuries earlier, when Isaiah said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now back in Isaiah, that prophecy initially fulfilled to the time when God's people had been in captivity in Babylon. And they're preparing to come back to, to, to promised land, to Jerusalem. And the way back was something called the King's Highway. And they didn't have a dot, or I guess it would be I dot back then. If you wanted to travel down the king's highway, especially if the king wanted to travel down the king's highway, you know what he would do? He would send workers out ahead of himself to remove the obstacles so that he could travel that highway. So what's John doing here? He, he is telling the people, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. It's not some physical highway. It's your heart's people. Prepare your hearts for the king is coming. I want to talk about what he wore, his wardrobe. Verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. The startling contrast with the Pharisees and Sadducees, those... Religious leaders in Israel at the time loved their flowing, perhaps silky, fancy robes. He's out there with camel's hair and a leather belt, eating bugs and, and wild honey. Now, even what he wore would remind perceptive Jews of a prophet in their past. Do you know who? Elijah. Absolutely. We know this from 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah came on the scene telling the people, you've got to choose between this false god Baal and the true god Yahweh. And wicked King Ahab knew that some of his men had met someone in the, in the desert. And one of his first questions is, what, what was he wearing? What was that guy wearing? And 2 Kings 1.8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, that's Elijah the Tishbite. They, they knew who it was based on how he was dressed. I think about like 
Guys like Elijah and John the Baptist, they would not shop at Hot Topic. They would maybe shop at Hot Profit. <laughs> That's where you get the camel's hair and the leather belt. But it was distinctive. It was distinctive in Malachi. Malachi, 400 years earlier, had said one would come in the likeness of Elijah. Malachi 3.1 Malachi told the people, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. But he gets more to the point in chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they knew one in the likeness of Elijah would come to prepare the way of the Lord. Now I want to talk about the message of the king in the response of the subjects. John the Baptist is going to deliver the message of the king. You sum it up in one word, and we'll unpack it more, but that word is repent. Repent. Do you hear that word a lot these days? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to talk about both sides of that. First, what do we think of when we think of repentance? Often we think of an emotional response, perhaps crying over sin or being sorry, feeling sorry for it. And that is certainly not excluded from the idea of repentance. But I want to tell you this morning that the biblical picture of true repentance goes a lot further than tears and feelings. Biblical repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of life. It is what the New Testament, it leads to what the New Testament calls fruits of repentance. It bears fruits. Now there are two dangers to beware of in the church today. Dangers for you and I. One is to believe the lie that repentance is not needed and to just leave that out of our lives altogether. If you believe it's not needed, read your New Testament. Circle every time you see the word repent. But there's another danger in our understanding of repentance. It's if we misunderstand it as our own human effort to clean ourselves up and make ourselves righteous before God. It is a work of God in the hearts of men in response to his word. I like what some have written that when you think of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Understand where they're going. I turn from my sin and reliance upon myself to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Repent and believe. It's not a popular message today. It likely is never popular in the hearts of, of human beings who tend toward pride and self-sufficiency, right? But how would the response be in John's day? Well, I, look at, I want to look at two responses. First, the, the heart of the masses that showed up there. And I'm going to summarize the response of many as humble acceptance. We need this message. People who would admit their need, their, their sinfulness. Watch, you see it in verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem 
in all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Now, this is somewhat amazing. I told you John's not in the temple where it'd be easy for people to come. He's out in the wilderness, and yet God is working because people are traveling out there to hear what his messenger is saying. Verse 6, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You see, they admitted, I am a sinner in need of confession. I am a sinner in need of repentance. I want to contrast that humble acceptance of many in the crowd with the heart of the leaders, the religious leaders in particular. Think about prophets that showed up in Israel's history. What did they come doing time after time? They came to knock down the false idols that God's people were worshiping. Some righteous kings did that literally. They smashed altars to pagan gods and they would present the people with that choice. Worship your idol or worship the true Yahweh. Now, after their captivities, many of the Jews got that message well about physical, metal, idols. And you don't see that as part of their their history any longer after that. But many idols are more subtle than the idols that you can lay eyes on. And these religious leaders in particular had two idols at the very least. One of those that we'll look at here was their prideful presumption. And one of them was their confidence in their human self-powered outward show. Those are idols to beware of then. They are idols to beware of today. We know they had this in their hearts because of how John responds to them. When he saw many of the Pharisees, we'll unpack these guys more as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, but basically, I'll just tell you this, in between the Testaments, the Pharisees started out great. They started out great. They knew if the people disobeyed God's law, judgment would come. That happened time and time again. So they said, we got to follow God's law. But then they began to add their own traditions, which eventually became more important to them than what God had said. And they added to that this prideful attitude of presumption. They they looked down on everyone who was not one of them. And they focused more on the outward than the inward. This looks impressive to the people. And so I'm good. But what did Jesus later tell them? Whitewashed tombs full of what? Dead men's bones. The Sadducees, who are those guys? Well, history tells us they compromised with pagan culture for money. Those were the guys who were so offended when Jesus cleansed the temple because he was messing with their business. Many of them were in the priestly line, ironically, these compromisers. They also denied much of the supernatural, including resurrection. What a strong contrast with John. Luke tells us he's from the priestly line of Aaron. God's true priest is out in the desert preaching the truth to his people while these Sadducees are compromising with the world. 
So they're coming down to his baptism. How would John welcome them? I imagine there were Jews in the crowd that when they saw the Pharisees and Sadducees probably expected John to say, hey, we have some special guests here. Come on down. The Pharisees and Sadducees, let's give them a round of applause. Because outwardly, they were the pinnacle of everything you wanted to be. How did John welcome them? You brood of vipers. Now, if anybody in the crowd was sleeping up to that point, that's where they're like, <laughs> did, did he just call them that? And that would have rung a bell. Prophets use that kind of language in the Old Testament against the wicked, but now he's using it against our religious leaders? What did it mean? And scholars have suggested a couple things here. Vipers have... We live in the desert, right? Poisonous snakes often live under branches, bundles of sticks, and sometimes they even blend in with those harmless sticks. That could have been some of what he was saying. Hey, you look harmless. You look good to the people, but inside I know you're, you're full of poison that will lead yourselves and your followers to death if they follow you. But he goes on to say, who warned you? He warns you to flee from the wrath to come. And he may have had the picture of a desert fire. Have you ever seen a grass field out here catch on fire? We have out in Viewpoint. That fire goes, and sometimes if you're in front of it, you can see rabbits and lizards and snakes doing their best to, to get out of there. Who warned you? He looks at them and says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What's he saying? He's, he's dealing with reality. He's saying it's not enough to, to look like you're righteous to these people. I want to see real fruit that, that lines up with a heart that has turned from its sin to God. And here we get in on that prideful presumption they had. Verse 9, he said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. How does this play out today? How, what kind of prideful presumption do people rely on before God? What do we need to be aware of? Well, I'll tell you this. You go to heaven and, and you're before God. You say, hey, I, I grew up in the United States of America, a nation founded on Judeo-Christian ethics, so I'm good, right? <laughs> Maybe you say, hey, my... My family growing up, we went to church every week. I'm, I'm good, right? No. No. That's prideful presumption instead of humble acceptance of our need. Think of what Paul would write of the Jews, and I think there's a warning in it for us too. Romans 2.28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. God doesn't have any grandchildren. You've probably heard it said that way. You're not going to get there and say, well, my mom and dad believed. What has happened in your own heart in response to his message? Don't, don't have that prideful presumption before God. 
he goes on, he says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We know there were stones around there. If this is close to where Israel crossed the Jordan, you remember they set up 12 of them to remember. Maybe he points at them and he says, hey, just because you're Abraham's physical descendant does not mean you're safe. God can make children out of these stones. And what's he getting at? He, he is contrasting their man-powered outward show and lineage versus the need for God's work in a heart to bring about salvation, right? It takes God's work. And as he looked at those stones, some of those Jews were likely thinking back to a mention of stones in Ezekiel 36 as he had predicted what God would do. Listen to this prediction, and I want you to listen to all the times God says, I will, I will, I will. Ezekiel 36, 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you the stones, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What's that mean? God was saying, I will give you a heart of flesh that responds to my ways instead of stubbornly resisting them, but it would take his work, not their man-powered show. He gets more blunt. When he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you say, what does that mean? Well, it's got to mean a whole lot more than that God is sovereign over the universe. That's always been true. We talked about that in the book of Esther. And there's a lot of things it means, but for today, I'm going to sum it up as this. God's kingdom is at hand, people, because the king is here in the flesh. And we often think primarily of the message of hope in the gospel, and that's there. I told you we're coming to the good news. But there was also a message of warning with the king being at hand. What does John say in verse 10? It says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, the king's presence is a message of grace and hope, but it's also a message of judgment for those who dare reject the king. You think of Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We got to ponder hard. Which side of that are we on? And he starts to introduce the king. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. It's this outward representation. That's all I can do for you. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Listen to this. Carrying sandals was the job of a slave in this culture. And John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, said, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the king. 
does our appreciation of the greatness of Jesus even begin to approach that level of humility? I'm not even worthy to be his slave. If I'm anything, it's only by his grace. So I baptize with water. He goes on in verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what the king would do with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Now, some have seen both of these, the Holy Spirit and fire, fulfilled on Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit came on those believing Jews in that upper room and tongues as of fire. But I believe with those that he's really talking about two different baptisms here, largely because of the context of where John goes after this. There's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's for those who trust in the king. But there's another baptism for those who reject the king and fire. The Jews would know this. Malachi 3.2, when it speaks of the coming of the Lord, says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. I believe this is the baptism of judgment for those who reject the king. I believe that largely because of what he says in verse 12. He speaks of the king and he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see how the context helps us? And what is this talk of a threshing floor? We don't do that anymore. Okay, back in that day, you're the farmer. You go out and harvest your wheat. You would have a, a flat piece of land, maybe on top of a hill, so that the wind could, could help you out. And you'd put all that wheat up there. And then oxen would drag a sledge over that wheat to separate the valuable wheat that you want to keep from the worthless chaff. Then the winnowing fork, the farmer would, would throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow the chaff away. And what's left there on the threshing floor is the valuable wheat that he then gathers into the barn. Those who would respond in faith to the king. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Those who would dare reject the king. Now, I told you this first part was bad news, right? Now you understand why. We cannot read this warning from John without looking deep inside, if we're honest and receptive, to our own deep sense that I'm not okay on my own. I am not okay with God. I'm not right before him on my own. And this is brought out more as we go into the book of Matthew. You, you think about context. Just a couple chapters away, we're going to get to Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Jesus gives what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. He explains how citizens of the kingdom should live. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever read those three chapters and said, I got that down perfectly? If you have, you better read it again. Serious. There's one thing in there, Matthew 5, 48. He says, 
to the people, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, all of us with an honest heart will say, that's not me on my own. I need someone else. And that's where we're going to come into the good news. Even in Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to introduce you to the mission of the long-awaited king. And I'm going to sum it up as two realities. He came as the submissive son of his father and our righteous representative before his father. Verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now just put yourself in John's shoes here, right? You're out there baptizing, and then Jesus asks you to baptize him. What's your response? (laughs) Probably similar to John's, right? Verse 14 says John would have prevented him. He wanted to stop him saying, hey, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John's mind was, was blown. Why? Because what kind of baptism was this? We already saw. It's a baptism of repentance. The people were confessing their sins. Did Jesus have anything in his nature or his past to confess? No. 1 John 3, 5, in him there is no sin. So why? Because... He came to obey the will of his father and be your righteous representative and mine. We know that he would take our sins to the cross, but even this early step of obedience and this baptism of repentance shows he is willing to be numbered with transgressors like you and like me to be our righteous representative Think about the Jordan River. Even Naaman in the Old Testament didn't want to be messing around in the Jordan River. You remember this pagan leader came to Israel looking for healing from his leprosy. And when the prophet said, hey, go into the Jordan River, his response, verse 12, was, hey, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers we have in Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. It was an offense to his pride to be baptized in that Jordan River. But spiritually speaking here, here Jesus is entering into a baptism of repentance to identify with you and I. Oh, the humility and love of our Savior. The lengths he went to identify with you and I. And then we dare, we dare to think about, do I want to identify with him this week? We often think about his sacrifice for our sins, but how often do we think about his righteous life and how it affects us as believers? Why do I bring that up? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. We know that part. He took our sin to the cross. What's the rest of that verse say? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Believer in Jesus Christ, if, if you wrestle with insecurity about your standing before God this week, do not look at your track record. Look at the perfect 
track record of Jesus Christ. Look to his righteousness. Think about how his perfect righteousness from eternity past and in his earthly ministry is now credited to your account. When God looks at you for your standing, he sees the righteousness of Christ, believer. Think of everything Jesus does in the Gospels, every righteous act of obedience to his Father, and realize that's credited to your account by grace through faith. Just think of the things he said. John 4, 34, he's ministering to the Samaritan woman, and his guys are like, dude, aren't you hungry? Like, we've gone a long time without eating. What did he say? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 17, 4, as he approaches the cross and he prays to his father, he says to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He accomplished his father's will perfectly. And that righteousness becomes yours through faith. In Jesus Christ. I want to look at the messianic anointing of the king as we wrap up this, this chapter. Verse 16 says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, if you know your Bible, this idea of the, the hovering of this dove down upon him might remind you of Genesis chapter 1. At the outset of creation, Genesis 1, 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's the Spirit hovering over creation. And many have seen at this baptism, what's going on is the Spirit is now hovering over Jesus at the beginning of a new creation. You think about things that had happened at the Jordan River. You remember when Elijah went up in a chariot and, and Elisha was out there with him. And the other prophets wanted to see, hey, does Elisha have the same spirit that, that Elijah had? And after it after Elijah went up, 2 Kings 2.14 says, Elisha took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. And what did the people watch and say? When the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. It was a place of confirmation that he had the same spirit of God that Elijah did. Well, here we see the confirmation of God himself upon his son, the confirmation that this is my son. He is the long-awaited Messiah King. But there's more. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And right now, You've seen the whole Trinity, right? You've seen the Son. You've seen the Spirit. You hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You and I need that. We need Him to be pleased with the Son because you think about the creation account. 
You go all through Genesis 1, day after day. It was good, it was good, it was good. Not until you get to the end when man and woman are created in the image of God. What does it say? It was very good. It was very good, but two tragic chapters later, you see man step into sin. And while the image is not lost, it is marred. And it puts us in need of a way for the image of God to be restored fully in our lives. I'm telling you, the way is right here in Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And for the perceptive Jew, they would think of two prophecies as the father said that if they heard it that day or if they read Matthew's account later on. This is my beloved son. That goes back to Psalm 2, which was a prophecy of the coming Messiah King. Psalm 2, 7 says, the Lord said to me, you're my son. They would know this is the king. But that other part about my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, they would go to Isaiah 42, 1, where the suffering servant is introduced. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And you and I probably know it today, but this would have shocked perceptive listeners that the promised king is also the suffering servant. Because he's the suffering servant, the promised king stepped into the muddy waters of the Jordan River into a baptism of confession. I want to tell you something today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we never move past the life of Christ because he is our life. Paul tells us our lives are hidden with Christ and God. We never move past the righteousness of Christ because his righteousness is our own. It's hard to hear better news than that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He can not only be the submissive son of his father, but our righteous representative. As we close, I want to close with this. We need to embrace him by faith as our righteous representative whether it's to be saved for the first time this morning or in how we live our lives as his children. We don't get saved, start with our righteous representative and then go on and do the rest on our own. It's his life in us. And I I saw a, a picture of what I'm talking about. And I want you to think about this, whether it's for your salvation this morning or living in his righteousness today. That windstorm that came through, Five weeks ago, and knocked down a bunch of trees. Did any of you have trees knocked down? John did. Our brother-in-law did. Yeah, that was something else. Well, I saw something the next day. I actually took a picture of it, and I didn't bring it this morning, but I'll put it on Facebook. There was a, an aspen tree in a front yard in our neighborhood. And what I saw was somebody had taken one of those truck straps and, and wrapped it around that aspen tree and taking it back to a boulder that was about this big in their yard. And, and they, they strapped it to that boulder. And looking at it closely, I believe that boulder was the only thing keeping that tree upright. Why do I share that? 
Listen, if, if you hear the winds of warning in John the Baptist's message this morning and God is speaking to you, how should you respond? How do you need to respond? You need to strap your life in faith to the boulder of Jesus Christ. Because if you are to stand up rightly before God the Father and live uprightly before him on a day-to-day basis, it is only through the righteousness of his son. Amen? Father, I thank you. Thank you for the the smoke alarm of, of John the Baptist. Lord, we don't like warning, but how tragic would would it be if you hadn't warned us? There is love in the warning because if we will receive it, it will drive us to the Messiah King, the promise you made, the promise you kept. Your perfectly submissive and righteous son, our righteous representative. May you knock down the deceptive idols we build of our prideful presumption, of our man-powered, self-powered outward show that may impress those around us, but is filthy rags before you. Help us turn to the promised Messiah King with whom you are well pleased to put our faith in him, to find our life and power to obey in him we thank you for the lengths he came that he would not only step into that muddy Jordan River to identify with me but he would go to a cross I think of the words of that old hymn it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished thank you Lord May even our offerings this morning just be from super grateful hearts that worship the King. In Jesus' name, amen.